I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. We're looking at the closing verses of this little letter. And uh, the Apostle John packs a great deal into these last few verses, so we'll, we'll spend at least a couple, maybe three Sundays or so here in our text. As, as we look at the text together in the sermon, I, I, I want to suggest to you that you, you, you think of a sermon as a way for the preacher to help you meditate on, on the scriptures. Uh, meditation is extremely important uh, to your Christian faith. Uh, but meditation that's biblical is very different from other kinds of meditation you may have heard of. Meditation biblically is not emptying your mind. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's filling your mind. So biblical med meditation is to, is to delve into a text in a sense mentally. To get into that text and have that text get into you. And so it's a turning over of the text in your mind. A Hebrew word for for this kind of meditation is actually muttering. Because in ancient times, they didn't read silently. You read aloud. And so the idea is that you're reading aloud to yourself, or perhaps you've memorized the passage and you're saying it over and over again, and so you're sort of muttering it, and, and that's that's one of the ways that scripture memory can really help you. You can have a have a text to meditate on uh, wherever you happen to be. So, so my my goal as as a preacher is to have you meditating on the text. It, it, I, I hope that nothing that I say distracts you from the text. You know, we preachers are fallible, we make a lot of mistakes, so we go off on tangents, and, and that's unfortunate because that distracts from the text. So I'm hopeful that you are led into the text and to think about the text during the sermon time together. And in fact, you know, maybe as you're meditating on the text while I'm trying to, you know, help you do that, you know, your mind may zoom in on some aspect of the text that that you sort sort of take and run with. You don't have to listen to me religiously every second. You know, as long as you're thinking about the text, that's great. Uh, so, so that's what I want us to do together with with this text. I want us to I want us to meditate on it together, to to walk through it, and of course, part of that is is to walk slowly through it. That's one of the ways you can meditate on a text is by just slowing yourself down to think about it and think over again about it. And, and so that's what we're going to do with our text this morning. So I'm going to read the last uh, four verses of the, of the uh, letter of 1 John, but uh, I anticipate we'll just look at the uh, verse 18 for our text. But I wanted to set it in its context here. So here's God's word for us this day. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, 
and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You notice right away, I'm sure, that the literary structure here of these, these closing three verses, because John's made that so plain here. We know, we know, we know. I want, I want you to think about that and how that relates to your Christian faith. Now, I don't want you to get the impression from, from what I'm going to say that, that somehow our, our faith is to be devoid of feelings. Okay, there's a place for emotions. God created you as a being with emotions. And there's a place for experiencing those emotions, for expressing those emotions. In fact, we see that a lot in Scripture. That you read the narratives, one of the ways you read the narratives is to look for the emotion in it. It's not often given to you right out front. You have to read between the lines and, and ascertain what the different people in the narrative are, are feeling. And, and that's helpful for understanding what God is communicating in that. The, the book of Psalms, of course, which is the Lord's worship book to us, his song book in a sense to us, is full of emotion. Uh, j just about any emotion you could, you could, uh, you could imagine it is in the Psalms. John Calvin points that out and says that, that, that Psalms is, is like an anatomy of the soul. We read the Psalms and we see all the feelings that, that we have. So I'm not saying by, by focusing on this term, no, here, that feelings have no place. Uh, it, there should be feeling and emotion. To your Christian faith. There should be those times when you're moved to tears by Christian truth, when you rejoice. Uh, those times when the hair on the back of your neck stands up is some truth that, that God has made plain in Scripture to you. But we, we never want to confine our faith to emotion either. It's not just a matter of feeling. And I'm emphasizing that somewhat because we live in a culture of feeling, don't we? Everything is about feeling. In fact, you see it even in the way that, that people's opinions are asked for. Have you noticed that, that people are asked their opinion with feeling language? How do you feel about this issue? A and they'll say, I feel such and such. But it's clear in the context that, that there's thinking that's involved here. But feeling so dominates that our language reflects that. And, and, and your satisfaction in life, your meaning in life, is all about your feelings at the moment. So let's look at how John presents an alternative to that. He wants to leave us with something really strong. Okay? He's writing this letter because he really loves these people that he's writing to. And he wants to leave them with something solid to hang on to. Uh, they, just like we, live in hard times and face difficulties. He wants to give us something solid to base our lives on.
And so he says, we know. We know. There is an intellectual content to the Christian faith. We know. We are convinced. You can read this. We are absolutely sure. I'm sure John would be happy to have this read that way. We know. And notice he's putting himself in this too. It's the first person plural. We. Now, now he's, he said you know a number of times. In fact, I have a whole list of the times that he's used this verb know in scripture. And he used it. You know, at one point he says you all have knowledge. He, he, he uses it that way. But he, but he also sometimes says we know. He sees himself with his with his readers, with those people of whom he's addressing. He, he, he is not speaking to them like some, some person far removed from them. Some authority has no, no connection with them. This is truth for him as well as for them. We know. We know. And he wants us to remind he wants to remind us of something that, that we already know. Okay, that don't don't always be looking for for that which is novel. Uh, you know, that's one that's another fault of us preachers. Sometimes we're looking for that which is novel, that which is entertaining. And instead, preaching is much more about reminding people of what they already know. Okay. But we all tend to forget these things, or at least forget to live by them, forget to have them direct our lives. And so, so this is really a reminder. We know. What is it we know? We know that everyone, I want to pause there for a moment, okay? We know that everyone, some translations have uh, whoever, uh, whosoever, which, which is okay. That, that's, a, that's an acceptable translation, but... But, but I want you to know that the Greek word here comes from a word meaning every or all. And so I think John purposely is emphasizing something here. He's saying this is a truth that applies to everyone in this group that I'm about to describe. Okay? And this applies to you okay, if you're in this group. We know that everyone that all those of whom this is true. Everyone who has been born of God. There's our group. All of those in this group. Those who have been born of God. Notice the grammar. Okay? This is a perfect passage. A perfect past passage, I should say. We have, have been born, okay? There's an event that has happened, but that event is, is not merely something that happened back then. It is an event with present significance. That's what's conveyed by that text. And you can see how it perfectly fits. If you have been born, then you're alive. <laughs> that has significance for you. You are here because you have been born. Something happened, and 
and of course here he's talking about not physical birth, but spiritual birth. Spiritual birth. You have been birthed, you might say, by God. He's, he's talked about that before in Scripture. And of course, it's, it's everywhere in Scripture. Just meditate for a second on the fact that that's a passive force. Okay? This is something God has done in the believer. Nobody births themselves. Nobody gives birth to themselves. We have been born of God. God has done the work. God has done the work. Now that, of course, is emphasized in many ways in Scripture. Even in, even in, in some of the, the metaphors that we use for this, this new birth, John has spoken of our being born again. Uh, th think of it with this metaphor from John 3. The Holy Spirit breathes spiritual life into those who were dead in sin. Okay? There's a dead corpse there, dead in sin. The Holy Spirit breathes life into them. Okay, it's the work of God. Or, or think of the think of the metaphor that says that you were bought out of slavery to sin by the blood of Christ, and now you serve him alone. You've been purchased. There's another image of what God has done. You were a slave to sin, just like the Israelites were slaves in Israel. Couldn't do anything about it. God has bought your salvation from slavery to sin and made you his person, his servant. In relationship with him. Or think of the biblical metaphor in Second. Corinthians 5.17, where, where, where Paul says, you are new creatures in Christ. God's creative power has made you new creatures, just as certainly as he created human beings, he has created you spiritually new creatures. There's another, there's another metaphor for that. And and how about this powerful imagery from Ezekiel 36? I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You had a heart of stone. You had a dead heart. And God gave you a living heart. Why do we emphasize this in Scripture? Why does Scripture emphasize this so much? Because your relationship, your saving relationship with, with God, depends on what He has done, not upon anything you've done. You had nothing to do with your physical birth. 
He did not bring about your physical birth. And you did not bring about your spiritual birth either. You were dead, and now you're alive. Just as certainly as that corpse of Lazarus was dead in the, in the tomb, but was made alive by Jesus' words, speaking out, Lazarus come forth. Just as certainly you, if you have a relationship with God, have been brought to life by him. Why is that so important? Well, it's so important because you want to resist the idea that it depends on you. If you have the idea that somehow your relationship with God depends on you, you have to be good enough. You have to be smart enough. You have to be well-behaved enough. If you think it depends on you, you're going to live in uncertainty. Uncertainty. I, I know I've done that. I've been there. I've done that. John wants you to know. To be certain. We know then that everyone who has been born of God, God has done this decisive act for them. Okay? Does not keep on sinning. Does not keep on sinning. Now, 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 here's a truth about that group that he's focused our attention on. All those who have been born again, literally, the, the text says, does not sin. It uses the singular here. It's sort of generic singular for any individual believer. Does not sin. Present tense. Okay. A present action. What does he mean by this? Now, now, is this the equivalent of saying that somebody who's spiritually born of God is, is now sinless? Some people have looked at texts like this and, and taught a doctrine of sinless perfection. That somehow you can arrive in your Christian life at a point where you don't sin anymore. A friend of mine who's a pastor visited some a couple, and, and the husband said, I, I don't sin anymore. Perhaps he was citing this verse. I, I've reached the point where I, I don't sin anymore. The pastor friend turned to his wife and said, is that true? <laughs> and there was a long silence. <laughs> That's not what, what John is saying here. What he's talking about is what he's described earlier in the letter with the expression practicing sin. The idea of ongoing patterns of sin. If you've been born again, if you've been given life in Christ, that life does not produce sin. That's what John's saying. That life rather produces godliness. It produces growth. Growth in godliness. Now, now again, there's a tension that John's maintaining. We saw it very early in the letter, way back in chapter 1. Uh, he, he's, he's fervently saying that there's, there's a certain life that, that Christians show. They show a longing for godliness. They, they show a desire to grow in godliness. 
he puts it this way in the first chapter of, of first john if we say we have fellowship if we say we have remember that's the word for union very very close connection if, if we say we're united with him while we walk in darkness and of course the darkness is a metaphor for sin there we lie and do not practice the truth you can't say you're really in relationship with god if you're continuing to live a life in sin that's what he's saying there but if we walk in the light as he's in the light there the light of course being a metaphor for his righteousness we have fellowship with one another as well as with him but notice that he adds in the blood of jesus his son cleanses us from all sin there's a cleansing that happens which implies that there is sin to be cleansed right and so he goes on to say if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness in fact later it just in a few minutes he's going to say if you say you never sin you're lying so he's not saying that you never sin as a believer that's why he, he makes such an emphasis on the fact that if you confess your sins you're forgiven he, he underscores that a number of times but he is saying the new birth makes a difference if you've been spiritually born again if you've been given a new heart you've got a a, a new desire in life you've got a desire to please him to to love him to serve him and so he says in chapter 3 of 1 John, everyone who makes a practice of sinning, I think that's what he's talking about in our text, also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. He, he, he's saying if you truly had a work of grace in your heart and life, if you've been brought to faith in Jesus Christ, that produces a change it produces growth and godliness again not that you're perfect okay that's not what he's saying but you should by god's grace be able to say say i am growing in christ i am growing in godliness you can't say that you're in dangerous ground I think he means for us to take this seriously. He wants us to take sin seriously. And so he's saying, this is incompatible with the new life. You've been born again, then you've been given a new life. You don't practice sin as a way of life anymore. You may sin, you confess that sin and you receive forgiveness so this translation puts it we do not keep on sinning now he's going to draw a contrast now so he uses the word but makes a strong contrast here and what he's contrasting is that is that old way that way of living centered on self that lifestyle of sin and this new one so that's what he's contrasting in the next phrase he was born of god protects him okay see that's the alternative condition to living in sin 
And what a wonderful promise it is, isn't it? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. Uh, the word is the same that we saw in the first part of the verse, where it says, who has been born of God. It's just a slightly different tense now. He who was born of God. It's a simple past tense. The emphasis on an event that happened made a difference. But who is this he who is born of God? Now, is this the same person, speaking generically, as those described in the first part of the verse? In other words, is he talking about Christians here? Or is he talking about Christ himself? That's the other way to interpret this. And that, too, would fit with John's language earlier in Scripture, earlier in this book. Now, connected with that is the question of the pronoun there that follows, protects, or keeps the verb. And some translations have himself, and some have him. There's a difference in the Greek manuscripts here. We have thousands of these Greek manuscripts now since the dawn of modern archaeology. And so we could analyze that question from that viewpoint. The question boils down to, is this saying the individual Christian, born of God, that language is used to Christians, keep himself, or does it say Christ, the Son of God, born of God, keep him that is Christian? You see the difference there. Do you keep yourself, or does Christ keep you? That's essentially what he's saying. Now, now there, is, there is plenty of teaching in Scripture that says you're responsible. Uh, you're, you're responsible to, to exercise diligence in your Christian life, to, to be careful about your choices and your decisions. And so... Uh, for instance, we, we read of uh, we read that uh, Paul writes to Timothy, "Keep yourself pure." He's using the same term. Uh, Jude verse twenty one says, "Keep yourselves in the love of God." There's an expression in uh, James one twenty seven that slightly different because it uses a different uh, person here, keep oneself unstained from the world. So there's that idea in Scripture of maintaining diligence toward yourself. Uh, the, the expression, keep yourself from idols, at the end of this book, by the way, that uses a different, different verb that might be better translated guard or separate yourself from idols. But, but that idea of keeping yourself pure, that there's certainly that in scripture, but, but I've been unable to find any place where this language is used of keeping yourself as a believer. I haven't found anywhere where we're told, Christian, keep yourself. But there are plenty of passages where we're told of Christ or God keeping us. For instance, in the Gospel of John, this is Jesus' prayer. Holy Father, keep them 
There's our verb. In your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, he says later in, on in his prayer, but that you keep them from the evil one. The same kind of language is in a benediction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. For Jude 1, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. All of these use the same verb. But of course, that idea of being kept is, is used in uh, with different terms many other places as well John 10 Jesus says of those who belong to him who the father has given to him no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand uh, we see it in the Old Testament as well our God's promise to Jacob I am with you and will keep you wherever you go we see it in that great benediction from Number six, the Lord bless you and keep you. We see it in the expression, uh, Psalm 12, 7, you, O Lord, will keep them. Psalm 121, the Lord will keep you from all evil. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep them in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. In this context, I think what John is emphasizing is that that the fact that you are kept by God, that you are preserved by God, okay, that, that, that your salvation is sure in Him. Okay, it's, it's not something He's going to take back from you. That that, that that surety then is an encouragement to you in that ongoing battle with sin. Do you see the connection there? Just as your Christian life starts with God's work in your heart, bringing you to faith in Him, it continues with His work. It's not that that God says to you, okay, you're saved from your sin, I forgive you as of this moment, now keep yourself. Now maintain your salvation, because if you slip up, you may lose it. That's not biblical. It's not biblical. If you've been born again, you're kept by him, and it's in the confidence that that gives them that you can resist sin. When you're confronted with temptation, here's where you need to look. You need to look to Christ. You need to look to what God has done for you. And in the midst of that temptation, say, God, I know you've saved me. And in that confidence, I'm going to resist the sin. Because I know, to hurriedly go on to the end of our text here, I am protected by you and the evil one cannot touch me. Your protection in this life depended upon what God has done in Christ. So, so in every way, I think John is seeking to give us here a message of assurance. And he and his his goal, I think, at least part of the goal of that giving of assurance, is that we are equipped, we are armored up for resisting sin. 
And we can say when we're confronted with temptation, I have a new heart in Christ that has inclined me into his ways, and so I don't have to give in. That's the freedom of being a Christian. You don't no longer have to give in to sin and temptation. You have a freedom that the one outside of Christ does not have. Take advantage of that freedom. The scripture says elsewhere, live as those who are free. Remembering that the awesome price that God has paid to free you from that sin. Life of his own dear son. Do you know this? Can you join with John in saying, we know this? You know it by faith. Okay, that's the key. It's not that this is only for people of a, of a certain IQ. They're the only ones that can know this. No. It's for anyone who takes God at his word, who believes what he's saying here, you have the confidence to say, we know. And we pray that you would enable us to live in that home. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that we, we would know uh, with increasing confidence, with increasing faith, with increasing assurance that we would know that we have been born again through the work of your Holy Spirit and that we would be freed then to live in keeping with that. All of us struggle with sin. We'll face temptation before the day's out and certainly uh, through, through the week. Uh, re remind us of these truths and words because we want to honor you. We want to please you. We want to we want to live lives that bring glory to you as we overcome sin and the freedom that you've given to us at such great cost in Jesus Christ. And help us to encourage one another in this as well, to hold one another up in prayer and, and, and give godly counsel on all those things which will help us to be uh, your loving and obedient people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.